Well, take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 5. If you're visiting with us today, we have been going through the Gospel of John together as a church, and this morning we're going to be looking at chapter 5, verses 1 through 18, and for the sake of time, I'm not going to read the text as I normally do at the beginning, but we'll just get right into it. As most of you know, I've had the distinct privilege of going on multiple short-term mission trips to India. And one of the most fascinating and, at the same time, heartbreaking things about India is how they treat cows. That's right. The main religion in India is obviously Hinduism. And in Hinduism, the cow is considered sacred. In fact, it's protected by law. You can go to jail for injuring a cow or killing a cow, which isn't that hard, by the way, to do because uh, they share the city streets with all the traffic, and uh, they're, in fact, one of the main causes of all the traffic problems in India. Everywhere you turn, there's these cows roaming free and grazing on the trash that's strewn all over the place. And these wild, filthy beasts are a menace to the Indian society, but the reason why they won't kill them or eat them is because they're associated with certain deities, and also they're thought to house the souls of dead people. Obviously, one of the beliefs in Hinduism is reincarnation. And so you, it's possible that you could come back in your second life as a cow, right? So you don't want to be killing and eating your uncle, right? So you just leave the cows alone. Well, there's actually an annual cow holiday in India where cows are washed. They're decorated with all sorts of wreaths and ribbons, and they're worshipped in the temples, and people present them offerings for good luck. And when you leave the temple, the Hindu priest will apply that traditional line on your forehead or that dot on your forehead, which is made from a mixture of some kind of ash and charcoal, and you guessed it, cow dung. If the well-meaning, if all the well-meaning tourists, right, from the Western countries who go there and want so badly to get that little dot on their forehead or that line on their forehead, they only knew what they were getting smeared on their forehead, Right? Don't touch me with cow poop. I'm fine, all right? Well, the Western world has coined an expression that's based on the honored status of cows in India. It's the term we use called sacred cow, right? You're familiar with that? We use that to refer to anything that's treated with such respect that you cannot criticize it or question it. A sacred cow in our society is some kind of strongly held belief system or practice of an individual or a family or an organization, an institution, a corporation, and anyone who has the audacity to suggest that the way that someone is thinking or operating is wrong or could be improved on is considered controversial and is viewed with contempt. I came across a book this week entitled, Sacred Cows Make the Best Burgers. (laughs) Well, when God came to earth in the form of Jesus Christ, he made some great burgers with some sacred cows. And uh, he had the audacity, and not only the audacity, he had the authority to take on the wrong belief systems and practices of his chosen people, the Jews. And he had every right to, considering the fact that he was the one, God was the one who instituted the Jewish religion in the first place. It's known today as Judaism. And he had sovereignly chosen the nation of Israel to be his special people, 
who would worship him and him alone, and through them he would provide a savior not only for the Jews, but for all the nations of the world. Unfortunately, the Jewish people did not remain set apart from the rest of the world like God intended, and so God would raise up uh, leaders amongst them to call them back to his holy standards. And and we know all about the prophets of the Old Testament. Well, when the prophets uh, kind of uh, died off, if you will, uh, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, where, where, where there was really no voice uh, from the Lord uh, speaking, they called the 400 silent years because there was no new revelation, uh, a group of leaders called the Pharisees rose to prominence within Judaism. And I, I think the Pharisees initially had right hearts, uh, it was a good movement that was originally intended to motivate God's people to honor and obey uh, God and to be holy as He is holy. And so the Pharisees reestablished the Old Testament law as the means by which the Jews were to relate to God. And in an effort to help people apply the principles that were outlined in the law, primarily the Ten Commandments, they added a bunch of their own man-made rules and regulations which they considered equal to and even above God's word. And this obviously uh, soon deteriorated into a works-based religion in which people had to earn God's favor, favor by their obedience. And so by the time Jesus arrived on the scene, the Jewish religious leaders had become extremely self-righteous as a result of maintaining their own list of rules and regulations, even though they were guilty of disobeying God's law. They were happy and proud that they were keeping their law. And at the same time, they had hypocritically imposed this legalistic system of righteousness or religion on the Jewish people, which was impossible for anyone to maintain. And at the very heart and core of this legalistic religious system was the Sabbath. Sabbath observance was um, really uh, played a pervasive role in Judaism to the point that the coming of the Messiah was linked to the perfect keeping of the Sabbath. In other words, if we want the Messiah to come, we need to keep the Sabbath perfectly. Well, I'm sure you're familiar with the history of the Sabbath, but let me just refresh your memory this morning. The Sabbath was originally established at creation by God himself. You remember in Genesis chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their hosts. By the seventh day God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. And so here we see God establishing uh, at creation the Sabbath, the Sabbath rest. And it wasn't that God was all tired out from all of his hard work. Uh, God never gets tired, but he wanted to set in place uh, a day of rest for his people. And so he modeled that himself. And he said, listen, I want you to work seven or six days, and I want you to rest on the seventh day. Well, when, um, when Moses came along in, uh, in Exodus chapter 20, uh, we see how God mandated this um, Sabbath that he had established at creation. He mandated it at Mount Sinai. This is Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. Of course, this is the fourth commandment. He says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, 
You or your son or your daughter, your male, your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. In other words, everybody and everything in your household gets the day off. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Well, Moses went on to reiterate the importance of keeping the Sabbath. Um, One example is in Exodus chapter 31, verses 12 to 17. But listen to what uh, he says here in verse 15. For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest Holy to the Lord, whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall surely be put to death. Wow, God's pretty serious about this Sabbath rest, about taking Saturdays off, right, to replenish your energy and ultimately to worship Him. Well, this command from the Lord um, was ultimately corrupted by the Pharisees. Because when God commanded, originally commanded his people to not work on the Sabbath, he was simply referring to what they did for a living. In other words, their daily occupation, they were to take a break from that. But the Pharisees amplified the fourth commandment by adding 39 other categories of work that they said were prohibited on the Sabbath, which went far beyond God's original intent for the Sabbath. For example... You weren't allowed to bite your fingernails. I'm not making that up. That was one of the 39 things. You can't bite your fingernails because you'd be working. And ladies, you couldn't fix your hair. You couldn't put on makeup. You're like, man, if that was the case today, I wouldn't be here sitting here in church today. I wouldn't go out in public right, without fixing my hair, putting on my makeup. Well, those were the things that the Pharisees said you couldn't do on the Sabbath. And if you did them, you should die. Wow. Think they a little over the top, don't you think, on applying the fourth commandment. And yet these nitpicky restrictions became part of rabbinic tradition and they were taught and enforced among the people. And so what God had originally intended to be a refreshing gift to his people became the most obsessive and oppressive day of the week. And rather than looking forward to the Sabbath, everyone dreaded the Sabbath. All that to say the Sabbath had become the sacred cow of the religious uh, leaders in, 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 in Judaism. And so it's no wonder that Jesus deliberately took them to task on this issue and purposely performed miracles on the Sabbath to confront and challenge their wrong thinking and wrong observance uh, and all, the, all their legalistic traditions surrounding this day. Uh, If you look throughout the Gospels, there was at least six people that Jesus healed on the Sabbath. We're going to see one this morning and here in John chapter 5, the invalid at the pool of Bethesda. We're going to see in chapter 9 of John, the man born blind. Uh, We we see in Matthew 12, a man with a withered hand was healed. In Luke chapter 4, a a man possessed by a demon was, um, was, was healed. Uh, was exercised. In, in Luke 13, the wo- a woman that was crippled for 18 years was healed. And then in Luke 14, a man with dropsy was healed on the Sabbath. Uh, not only were these miracles something that, that uh, Jesus did to uh, really um, confront the false thinking about the Sabbath, uh, he also took advantage of the question 
that uh, some of the Jewish religious leaders asked regarding his disciples who they caught picking grain as they were walking through the fields on the Sabbath. One, one account of this is found in Mark chapter 2. You may want to turn there with me just for a moment. Mark chapter 2, because here Jesus really summarizes everything he wanted to get across to the Jewish religious leaders about the Sabbath. Mark chapter 2, verse 23, Mark records, And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their own way along with, began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. So they were probably just hungry and they were just kind of walking along and grabbing a, a few uh, stalks of grain and maybe pop, popping the grain into their mouth for sustenance. And it says in verse 24, the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Your disciples are harvesting grain. They're working on the Sabbath. And Jesus maybe rolled his eyes at that point, I'm not sure. That's why I'm not Jesus, because I would have rolled my eyes, right? Verse 25, he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need? He and his companions became hungry, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest, and he also gave it to those who were with him. In other words, extreme times, right, require extreme measures, and nobody gave David a hard time for doing that. They understood it was appropriate. He was David. He could do what he wanted, right? He was the king. Verse 27, Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not, the man, and not man for the Sabbath. You guys have flipped this thing totally around. You got it backwards, right? I, I, the, the Sabbath was a, as it was a gift to man. It wasn't that man was made for the Sabbath. And then this is the the bottom line here. This is the the climax, verse 28. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And so here Jesus was claiming authority over the Sabbath. In essence, what he was saying is, listen, I established the the Sabbath in the first place, and therefore I can do whatever I want on the Sabbath, because guess what, guys? I'm God. I'm God. And again, that's the whole point of the Gospel of John, right? He, he's proving to us that Jesus was God. And in chapters 2 through 12, we, we've been looking at how John strung together a series of seven signs or miracles that most clearly proved the deity of Jesus Christ and would most likely produce faith in his life and death, leading people to eternal life. We've already looked at the first two signs, turning water into wine and the healing of the nobleman's son, and now we come to the third sign when he healed this paralytic at the pool of Bethesda. Now, what is unique about this sign was it was a critical turning point in Jesus' ministry. Um, Jesus had already captured the attention of the Jewish religious leaders when he showed up in Jerusalem for the first Passover, uh, and he cleared out the temple of all the animals and the tax, or excuse me, the money changers and the sellers. Uh, I mean, that's an understatement to say he got their attention, right? And as his ministry grew in popularity, they began to scrutinize Jesus even more closely. We saw that in chapter 4 when he began to outshine uh, John the Baptist, and he began to, to uh, baptize more people than John the Baptist. They, they began to take a closer look, and that's when Jesus went north uh, into the region of Galilee to avoid a conflict, a premature conflict with the religious leaders. But it's time. 
And when Jesus squared off against the sacred cow of Judaism, the Jewish leaders considered him very controversial and viewed him with contempt, and they began to persecute him and turn the tide of public opinion against him. And we're going to see that happening in chapters 5 all the way to chapter 10 that, the, that, that John's going to record here for us, the increasing opposition to Jesus, which will climax in chapters 11 and 12 in his rejection. They're just going to reject him. And then we're going to see in verses thir- chapters 13 to 17 how he uh, retreated after he was rejected by the masses. He retreated to the upper room for a private conversation with his disciples um, there as he poured his life into them those last few uh, really days and hours uh, of his life. And so if you save the outline that I gave you early on about this, uh, kind of the overview of this book, we've already seen the incarnation of the Son of God in the very first chapter. We've been looking at the presentation of the Son of God in chapters 1 through 4. He's just been presenting himself as the Son of God. And now here, starting in chapter 5, we're we're moving into a new section that we could call the opposition to the Son of God. The opposition to the Son of God. And so let's see how this opposition is, is, is initiated or launched. Um, and, and in many ways, you could say Jesus picked a fight with the Pharisees. And uh, how, how did this happen? Well, I've divided this story into three sections this morning. We're going to see the cure in verses 1 through 9, the controversy in verses 10 through 16, and the charge in verses 17 to 18. First of all, let's look at the cure. Verse 1. After these things, you say, what things? Well, the healing of the nobleman's son up in the region of Galilee. Um, After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, this is the only unspecified feast that John included in his gospel. Some believe it was the Passover, but uh, I think it's impossible for us to know for sure. What What we can know for sure is that it was likely one of the three major annual feasts that required the Jews, excuse me, to travel to Jerusalem. And that's why Jesus was going there. Uh, He was obedient to the law uh, of the land. As a Jew, he would go uh, to Jerusalem during the the feasts, whether it was Passover, uh, the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Booze, we're not sure, but there was a feast and he went there. Verse 2, now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos or porches. Now, this pool of Bethesda, the word Bethesda means house of mercy or or pity. And uh, what's uh, interesting about this particular pool is archaeologists have actually unearthed this exact pool. They're confident that this is the pool that they've uh, excavated. And it's located in the northeast corner of the old city of Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate, right next to the modern-day Uh, St. Anne's Church. And when we were there several years ago with a group from our church, we actually got to peer into uh, this this excavation and look at this pool of Bethesda and actually got to go into that church and listen to some glorious singing. But uh, this pool is is really um, uh, unique in that it is actually two pools side by side that were originally fed by an underground spring. And this may have been the real reason why the water was stirred up, as we're going to see in just a moment. It, it would get stirred up from time to time, and it was probably when the natural spring would gurgle and surge its way into the pools, and it would have caused the waters to, to, to ripple. Well, that wasn't necessarily the, the thinking in the day. Notice verse 3, in these 
porticos or these porches lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. Here it is, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. Now, hopefully, when you read that, you're like, well, that kind of sounds odd. I don't know that I've ever read anything like that anywhere else in Scripture. In fact, some of you might be looking going, that isn't even in my Bible. Where did you get that from, right? How, how many of you have an NIV this morning, right? And NIV, you, you're like, what's he talking about? That's not my Bible. Well, guess what? The NIV left the, the last part of verse 3 and verse 4 out of the Bibles. The, the New American Standard, which I use, actually brackets the last part of uh, verse 3 and all of verse 4. Why do they do that? Well, it's to indicate to us in our modern translations that this portion of Scripture was not in the earliest and most reliable manuscripts of the Gospel of John. That's why they bracket it or omit it uh, from modern translations. You say, well, so how do these verses get into the older manuscripts and even in some of our Bibles today? Well, probably these verses were added by the scribes as they copied the scriptures as, as more of a marginal note to explain the, the popular legend of the day surrounding the healing powers of this pool. It's not likely that an angel actually came down and stirred up this, this pot here or this, this pool here. I mean, nowhere does the Bible talk about any kind of superstitious healing involving angels and miracles, nor is it likely that God would ever create such a cruel environment where handicapped people have to compete with one another and crawl all over each other to get healed. That doesn't sound like God at all. You say, well, What's going on? Obviously, something extraordinary kept these hundreds of sick people lying around this pool with the hope of being cured. And if you, uh, one of the teenagers asked after the first service what I thought was going on, and I thought, thought, well, there's a reason why people go to, to Hot Springs, Arkansas. Right? There's something about sitting in those hot springs, and they talk about the medicinal effects, the healing effects of hot springs really all over the world. Right? There's certain places that have some positive effect on your body, some healing elements that are more natural, right? not necessarily supernatural. And so maybe there was something like that going on in this pool. Now, getting past all that speculation, can you imagine what this pathetic scene might have looked like. Again, verse 3, In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. I mean, just imagine all these people with all sorts of diseases and disabilities and in all stages of death just sprawled out across the five porches that surrounded this pool. I mean, the filth must have been indescribable, the stench, unbearable, the pain and the torment that was suffered by these sick and dying people, just unimaginable. And I think we could safely say that this is a vivid picture of the sad spiritual plight of the world. This is all of us, sinners, lying around in a, in a similar state of helplessness and hopeless. We're hopelessness. We're spiritually sick. We're spiritually blind. We're spiritually lame. We're spiritually paralyzed. And we desperately are in need of Jesus. 
to come and, and to heal us, not physically, but spiritually. Notice verse 5. It says, a man was there who had been ill for 38 years. Here was a, a, an invalid, we could call him, someone who wasn't able to, to walk, um, wasn't able to move him around himself. He needed someone to carry him around. Uh, he had been that, in that condition almost 40 years. In other words, he'd been unable to walk even before Jesus learned to walk. This was, this was, he was there before Jesus was born. Now, again, we don't know how long this man had laid by the side of this pool in this awful condition, but when Jesus saw him, his heart went out to him. And notice what happens in verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? So obviously Jesus knew this man's condition. He had um, the attribute of God, of, of omniscience, right? And so he knew how long this man had been there. And so you think, well, for a guy who had omniscience, why would he ask such a dumb question? You know, do you wish to get well? Well, duh, right? It's almost like that. Well, duh. Well, look around. Don't you think we all want to get healed? Why are we here? And so it seems like maybe an obvious, even ridiculous question to ask this guy and, and surely Jesus knew this was the man's greatest desire, but he wanted to see how this guy would respond. And so how does he respond? Verse 7, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, another steps down before me. It's kind of a, a pathetic answer if you ask me. <laughs> um, D.A. Carson even suggested here that that this sounds more like a crotchety old man grumbling about having to answer a dumb question. Um, and, and nevertheless, even though we don't see any expression of faith here in verse 7, in fact, it, it, it seems that this man doesn't even know who's talking to him. He's never heard of Jesus. He's never seen Jesus before. So he just thinks this is some dumb guy walking here saying, hey, you want to get well? well? What do you think, dummy? Right? He doesn't know. So he's just, he's just there talking, answering this guy. And then look at verse 8. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. I mean, we read these phrases, right? We've read them a hundred times before. We're like, we just pass. Oh, yeah, I, I've heard this story. Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Oh, that's cool. No, listen. Think about that. Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. I was, I was watching some of the folks who come in with their walkers and even in the wheelchairs this morning. And how amazing, how shocking, unbelievable that would be, right? If Jesus were to walk up and say, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. Get out of that wheelchair and walk. I mean, that would be amazing. It would, be, it would blow our minds. And so... Jesus wanted this guy to realize that the real power was not in this superstitious water, right? But it was in his word. And he simply spoke to this invalid and new life and power flowed into his crippled limbs. This was the creator here, recreating, if you will, uh, these, these dead limbs that, that no longer function properly. And this guy was completely and instantly healed. Notice it says, verse 9, immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. 
Now, obviously, this is purely physical healing at this point. But what a, what a beautiful picture to us of God's sovereign, unconditional grace in rescuing us from our sin apart from anything that we did. I mean, you think about this. There's no, this guy didn't seek out Christ. Christ sought him. He just walks into this mass of, you, of rotting humanity, right, who are doomed to die, and he chooses this guy. And he says, get up, take your mat, and go home. That's sovereign grace. John MacArthur says it well. He said, quote, this incident perfectly illustrates God's sovereign grace in action. Out of all the sick people at the pool, Jesus chose to heal this man. There was nothing about him that made him more deserving than the others, nor did he seek out Jesus. Jesus approached him. The Lord did not choose him because he foresaw that he had the faith to believe for a healing. He never did express belief that Jesus could heal him. So it is, so it is in salvation. Out of the spiritually dead multitude of Adam's fallen race, God chose and redeemed his elect, not because of anything they did to deserve it or because of their foreseen faith, but because of his sovereign choice. Even the faith to believe was a sovereign gift. What a, what a great reminder for us of our salvation in Christ. Well, that was the cure. Now, let's see how that led to the controversy in verse 10. Well, look at verse 9. It really begins there. It says, now it was the Sabbath on that day. Dun, dun, dun. It's like Jesus kind of fired the shot off, right? Got their attention. He knew exactly what day it was. And by the way, he could have chose any other day, right? This guy had been there for years, right? It didn't have to be this day, but he chose the Sabbath for a reason, and uh, when the religious leaders saw this man carrying his mat, they confronted him for breaking the law. Notice, verse 10, so the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. Thank you for laughing. <laughs> that tells me you get it. Are, are you kidding me? Are you, are you kidding me? You're going to ask that guy who's, who has been, hasn't been able to walk for 38 years, and the first thing you're going to ask the guy is, hey, what are you doing, buddy? You shouldn't be carrying your mat. You know it's the Sabbath. That's just a, an example, right, of how blind the Pharisees were. They, they, Jesus called them the blind leading what? The blind. And this is an example of their blind. They were blind. They were clueless. They were so fixated on their, on their rules, right? And on their regulations. And, and one of the things on their list of, of rules and regulations that was forbidden, right? The 39 times to work you're not allowed to do on the Sabbath, right alongside, you know, biting your fingernails and putting on your makeup, is you couldn't carry anything. Because then you'd be working, carrying a burden, so you couldn't carry anything. And so in their minds, this guy was committing a crime worthy of death. And they were so focused on the fact that this guy was carrying his mat on the Sabbath. It didn't even register to them that he was walking. Hello? And it's, the, it's, it's either they didn't notice, or they noticed, but they didn't, what? Care. 
They didn't care. And that was one of the things that Jesus confronted them about. Listen, you guys don't, you guys are so uncaring. You're so unloving that you heap these burdens on these people. And they're, they're walking around, you know, under this burden of all these rules and regulations. And that when Jesus said, hey, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. I'll get you out from under all this legalism. And so rather than rejoicing with this guy that he'd been miraculously healed, they pulled out the rule book and their whistle. <whistles> Foul. He threw the flag, right? You know, what are you doing? And so they were so wrapped around the axle about the letter of the law, right? That they lacked mercy and compassion. And I think this is so important that we understand this principle that where there is legalism, there is typically a lack of love. Legalism and love cannot coexist together. Notice verse 11. This guy realizes he's in trouble, right? He got busted by the Sabbath cops. And he said to them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. I'm, I'm, just tell, I'm just doing what the guy told me to do who healed me. Who, oh, by the way, who healed me, right? And so he was quick to shift the blame to Jesus. And by the way, if someone healed you after laying around, not able to walk for 38 years, and he said, pick up your mat and, and walk, I, I think you'd do the same thing, wouldn't you? Now, this guy has some authority. I'm going to do what he tells me to do. Verse 12, they asked him, well, who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? I mean, this just hacked the disciples, or this, this hacked the religious leaders off. Um, I mean, who, who, who would dare tell anybody to break the Sabbath traditions? Who is this? Who, who told you to do this? By the way, I didn't mention this, but when it says the Jews, verse 10, the Jews were saying to the man, uh, John uses that phrase kind of as an abbreviated term for the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders. It wasn't like all the Jews hanging around going, hey, what are you doing carrying your mat? It was the religious leaders that were all uptight. And uh, so he says, who, who, who did it? Who told you to do that? Verse 13, but the man who was healed did not know who it was. Now, he didn't even know who Jesus is still. Hadn't figured it out yet. He didn't even know the guy's name. Didn't have time to get a name. It says, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Kind of like Batman, right? Comes in, fixes the problem. Where'd he go? Right? Kind of lives in the shadows, right? So Jesus comes in and he, and he, and he, and he does this miracle. And this was very typical as we're going to see uh, as we go throughout the Gospel of John here that, that, that Jesus would disappear into a crowd, especially when he was about to get arrested or stoned. That was a good indication. Guys were leaning, leaning over, grabbing stones. That's the time you, you, you bug out, right? I'm out of here because I'm about to get a rock upside my head, and so I'm, I'm leaving. And so he would oftentimes just kind of uh, disappear into the crowd. And so this guy never got, got his name, didn't even know who he was. He didn't know who to tell the, the, these people. But notice, verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. Now, just the, the tone of all that, okay? And, and, and just even the way John words it here, 
makes it sound like Jesus didn't just bump into this guy in the temple. Oh, hey, I know you. Hey, yeah, you're the guy that healed me. I don't think that was what the dynamic here, okay? This, Jesus purposely went to the temple looking for this guy to challenge him to change his life, to change his ways. And this guy probably had, had gone to the temple to thank God for healing him and maybe offering the, the appropriate sacrifices. And Jesus took that opportunity to remind him that with great privilege comes great responsibility. And because God had been so gracious to restore him, he was now under obligation to live his life in a manner that was pleasing to God. And notice what he says, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore. Jesus didn't say don't sin as much as he used to. Or hey, you know, sin as little as possible, right? What did he say? He said don't sin anymore, period. And again, this is a reminder that God's standard is what? Perfection. Don't sin anymore. And he says, so that nothing worse happens to you. In other words, if, if this guy chose to continue in his life of sin, he would experience something far worse than physical sickness. He would experience spiritual death. And I think this is a reference here. There's something worse that would happen to him was God's judgment and wrath against his life of sin. The, the pain and the agony of spending 38 years on this earth as an invalid would be nothing compared to spending eternity in hell. And this phrase, let's read it again. Behold, you have become well. Do not, do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. Again, it seems to imply that this man's illness had been caused by some sin in his life. You're like, whoa. What are we supposed to think about that? Well, we need to be careful. We're on, we're on uh, thin ice, if you will. We're on, 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 uh, we have to be very careful on this ground. There's, there's minefields all over the place as we navigate through this whole theology of, of sickness and sin and how they relate. We know that uh, that's not always the case, right? Sickness is not always the cause of sin or, or, or caused by sin. We know that because of what Jesus said to the disciples in John chapter 9 when they passed by the man that was blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? See, there was this, this common uh, view in those days that if you saw somebody that was sick, you know, all these people up on these five porches, right, waiting to get healed, the, 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 the prevailing mindset was, man, these guys are a bunch of sinners. They're all suffering the consequences of some sin in their life. And this is God's judgment in their life. But Jesus said, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, sometimes, and maybe most of the time, when we get sick, it has nothing to do with our personal sin. Obviously, all sickness is a direct result of what? of sin in general, right? We live in a sin-cursed, fallen world where there's sickness and cancer and all that kind of stuff. So, so most of the time, our sickness is simply that God might accomplish a work either in us or, or through us. Like Job, for example. The, the, the writer of Job is, is, is clear that Job didn't do anything wrong. He was a man of integrity. He was the most righteous man on the planet. And God afflicted him or allowed Satan to afflict him, right? And it says that Job never sinned in the whole process. And so we know that whole thing. It, Job didn't do anything wrong. God wasn't 
judging him for his sin. God was using him and working in his life to make a point to Satan and to us, right, of why you worship the Lord. It's not because he always blesses you, right? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. However, in some cases, I think we can safely say that a person's sickness or illness may be caused by some pattern of sin in their lives. For example, how do you think alcohol abuse and drug abuse affects a person's body? Or sexual promiscuity, right? There's some diseases that you get when you violate God's word, when you live a lifestyle of sin. David admitted that in Psalm 32 that he, had, he experienced the physical effects of his sin. He talked about his body wasting away, right? Uh, because he was hiding that sin of adultery and murder. And, and he said that, that his, like all the, 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 his energy was being drained. Um, how about Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30? He said, listen, the reason why some of you guys uh, are, are getting sick and even some of you are dying is because you're messing with communion. You're not honoring Christ in the Lord's Supper when you take communion. And, and that's why some of you are sick. That's why some of you are dying. And uh, even in James chapter 5, interesting um, passage here, uh, talking about when you're sick, uh, how you're supposed to call the elders of the church and they're to pray over you and the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. And you're like, okay, I get that. But then notice what else it says. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. And so there's not just physical healing in mind here. There's also spiritual healing in mind. And so I think that, that that's an indication that there may be some cases where people are sick uh, as a result of some sin in their life. And this is an opportunity, right? God got, God's got them flat on their back and uh, they got nothing else to do but to examine their lives and to make sure they're right with the Lord. Now, please know, if I come visit you in the hospital, that's not my first thought. I'm not walking in here going, okay, so what'd you do? <laughs> what'd you do to deserve this, right? I'm not thinking that. That's the last thing on my mind. However, it, it wouldn't be the first time if you said, Pastor, you know what, I need to confess something to you. You know, and God's really convicted me of, of, of this thing. And I've, I've been in this hospital and I've, I've thought about maybe this is a consequence of what is going on in my life. And I just need to con- talk to somebody, but I just need to tell somebody. And, and I want to, would you pray for me? <laughs> Praise God, right? That's the point. It's not like we come prying, so, okay, what sins in your, what, what, what's really going on? No, that's something that, that God, that the Bible commands you to do, Right? Doesn't, doesn't say that the elders are supposed to pry around in your life trying to figure out what sin you're involved in. You need to be sensitive enough to what's going on in your life, right? Well, you'll let us know. And we can minister to you. And you'll not only be physically healed, but you'll be what? Spiritually healed. And again, this is a great reminder that God is far more interested in what's going on in our hearts than what's going on in our bodies. And in, and in God's mind, healing our body from sickness is secondary to healing our soul from sin. That's his ultimate priority. That's what he's getting at, uh, oftentimes in, in our sickness, right? It is he's, he's wanting to get to, to some issues in our lives that we are able to deal with. Well, notice verse 15. Jesus confronts this guy, says, uh, do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. Verse 15, we don't, again, we don't hear any response. We have no clue how this guy responded. All we know is, it says in verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. 
So the sense you get is immediately this guy takes off out of the, the temple. He, he runs back and finds the Jewish religious leaders and says, hey guys, I, I, I found out, I figured out who it is. The guy who healed me and told me to pick up my pallet and walk was Jesus. And again, I don't want to have to seek this guy's forgiveness in heaven for throwing him under the bus, right? But it does seem that while he may have just been passing on the, the, the word to the religious leaders and passing on Jesus' name, it, it appears here that he's still trying to defend himself at the expense of Jesus, right? I mean, he didn't want to get arrested. Don't arrest me, arrest Jesus, right? One commentator suggests that this was one of the greatest acts of ingratitude anywhere in Scripture. That right after Jesus graciously heals this guy, he rats Jesus out to the Pharisees. I mean, he threw Jesus under the bus to avoid being prosecuted himself for breaking the Sabbath. Well, look at verse 16. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And so when the, the Jewish religious leaders finally found out it was, it was Jesus who had healed the man on the Sabbath and, and had told him to pick up his pallet and, and carry it home on the Sabbath, they became hostile toward Jesus and they began to harass him. Now, granted, these, these guys, as the spiritual leaders of the, the, the religion of, of Judaism, they, they, it was their duty, it was their right to investigate new preachers and teachers who kind of came on the scene and, and, and they needed to make sure that they weren't false prophets who would lead the people astray. Well, unfortunately, they wrongly accused Jesus of being a false prophet. They put him in the wrong category. <laughs> and they said, we've got to do away with this guy. And that brings us to the last section here. We'll call it the charge. The controversy led to the charge. Verse 17, but he answered them, my father is working until now and I myself am working. And so when these Jews confronted Jesus about his unlawful conduct on the Sabbath, rather than confronting them in return for making man-made traditions equal to God's commands, Jesus just fought fire with fire. He says, okay, if that's how you want to play, let, let's just, let me just ratchet it up a notch. And so he claimed that he was equal to God. <laughs> you, you say your rules and regulations are equal to God's word? Well, guess what? I'm equal to God. How's that? Checkmate, right? And because I'm equal to God, I have the right to do whatever I want on the Sabbath. He says, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. You say, whoa, time out. I thought God was resting. I thought he's been sitting in his lazy boy ever since the seventh day, right? And, and hasn't worked another day in his life because after creation, he, he rested. Well, that's not true. He rested from creation, right? But now he's working to sustain creation. And also... He's working to seek to save his creatures who have wandered away from him in sin. And so God is at work. He's working right now, sustaining the universe and seeking to save the lost. But again, the issue of working was not what caught these guys' attention. It was the word, my. He answered them, my Father 
is working until now, and I myself am working like, whoa, 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 dude, dude, time out. Did you just call God my father? See, that was, that was like, la, 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 don't you even say that in my presence, right? Because no individual Jew would ever think of referring to God as my father, right? They only referred to him as our father. That was safe, right? He's our father as a Jewish nation. And so in the minds of the religious leaders, when Jesus called uh, God my father, he was making himself equal to God. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, look at verse 18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. In other words, this wasn't the first time they thought about killing him. They had already been thinking about this. Now they're thinking about it all the more. They're saying, how can we hurry up this process of getting, getting rid of this guy? Because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also calling God his own father, making himself what? Equal with God. So their original accusation against Jesus was breaking the Sabbath. They thought, they had, they thought that was enough. Oh, we got this guy now. He's breaking the Sabbath. All right, now we can bring him in. We've got, you know... Reason to arrest him. Well, little did they know, he was guilty of a far more heinous crime in their minds, and that was blaspheming God. Not only was this guy breaking the Sabbath, but this guy's blaspheming God. And of course, the penalty for blasphemy was what? Death. And so the Jews here felt like it was their duty and obligation to kill Jesus, and so from that point on, they began to plot his Death, and, and we'll see this as we go through this, this, this opposition section in, in the Gospel of John. Jesus kept almost, um, you know, I don't even know how to say it, he, he, but he kept asking them. He's like, hey, so why are you guys trying to kill me? So why are you guys trying to kill me? It was like, it wasn't a mystery. It was obvious. These guys wanted to get rid of him. So he said, why are you guys want to kill me now? What did, what did I just say or do that now you want to kill me? Right? He knew what they were trying to do the whole time. And I think this is important here. This last phrase in verse 18 Making himself equal with God. Underline that because some liberals and some cults will, will insist that Jesus never claimed to be equal to God, right? Because we say, hey, Jesus is God. He himself said he was equal to God. And they're like, no, he never said that. Well, the fact that the Pharisees clearly understood that Jesus was claiming to be God, I think is undeniable proof that Jesus did claim to be God, claim to be equal to God. They, they knew exactly what he meant. And the reason why he made himself equal to God is because he was God. And next week we're going to see how Jesus backed up this claim that he was equal to God in the rest of this chapter. But until then, let me ask you just a couple questions this morning drawn from Jesus' interaction with this invalid by the pool. And I would just say, first of all, that those of you that don't know Christ, just ask you this question. If you're not a Christian this morning, I'm just going to ask you this question. Do you want to get well? I mean, seriously, do you want to get well? Do you realize that you are paralyzed by sin and desperately in need of a miraculous spiritual healing in your life that only Jesus can accomplish? Are you willing to cry out to him today and ask him to save you and to help you not sin anymore? Do you want to get well? Do you want to get cured of this sickness of sin that all of us have? Jesus provides the cure.
through his death, his life and death and resurrection. For those of us who are Christians, maybe the more appropriate question for us this morning is this. If Jesus were to say to you, I mean, just look you straight in the eye. This is just you and him, okay? This is not me asking you this. This is Jesus asking you this question. And he said this. He said, do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. Okay, if Jesus said what he said to this uh, paralytic, this, this uh, invalid, he said to you, hey, listen, don't sin anymore or, or, so that nothing worse happens to you. If Jesus said that to you, what would be the first sin that would come to your mind? I would imagine there's a sin or two that might just come rushing to, oh, how did he know? How did he know I'm struggling with that sin in my life, right? And he would say, don't do that anymore. Or something worse might happen to you. Well, do you want to get rid of that sin? Do you want to get past that sin? Do you want to have victory over that sin? Well, isn't it it good news, right? That Jesus Christ's death and resurrection makes it, gave us the power, right, to overcome sin, that we don't have to sin anymore. And uh, he enables us by the power of his Holy Spirit that he has given us, right, to mortify those sins in our lives, to put to death those sins, to kill those sins in our lives. And we should do that out of love for Christ, in light of what you've done for me, Lord, the fact that you've healed me, you've, you've delivered me, you've rescued me from a life of sin, right? Behold, you've become well. Do not sin anymore. That we need to remember that we're not just breaking God's law when we sin, we're breaking God's heart. And we should be compelled, as the lady sang this morning, we should be compelled by God's great love for us in saving us, that we would just not want to sin anymore. And so I want to encourage you that whatever that sin that maybe came to your mind when I asked that question or posed that scenario, that, that, that you can start today, right, in, in stopping that sin. And if we can help you in any way in that process, you please let us do that. Because guess what? I'm dealing with sin in my life. You're dealing with sin in your life. We're all dealing with sin in our lives. And that's why God gave us the body of Christ, right? To help one another, to mortify the deeds of the flesh out of love for Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you have saved us by your sovereign grace. You didn't leave us to try to save ourselves by keeping a bunch of rules and regulations. Thank you that you sent your son Jesus to live the life we could never live, to die the death that we all deserve to die, to make it possible for us not to sin anymore. What a glorious day that will be when we don't sin anymore in heaven. We know that'll never happen on earth, but in the meantime, Lord, would you enable us by your spirit to mortify remaining sin out of love for Christ and what he's, what he's done for us. That it would just be the natural compulsion of our heart, Lord, not, not out of duty or, or just raw obedience, while that may have to be the case in some, you know, at some times we don't feel like doing what's right, Lord, but that you would just grant us that love and passion for the Lord that would make us just hate sin and want to honor Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen.